Welcome back to the Professor Penn Podcast, episode number 69. David Penn here. We're going to talk about anti-Semitism today, tonight. Hope you're well. Hope you had a good weekend. So much going on. Unbelievable, isn't it? Who would have thought? I don't feel good. I'm filled with dread today, and uh, I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm watching the news, and I'm watching what our leaders are saying, and maybe they're being hyperbolic, maybe they're being dramatic, theatrical, or maybe they're just eschatological. For those of you who are not familiar with that word, that would mean apocalyptic. And there's certainly a lot of apocalyptic rhetoric being used throughout the uh, Middle East. Uh, uh, Sign of the times, right? Remember Prince, or the artist formerly known as Prince? Sign of the times. Uh, I'm going to thank Free People Radio for another opportunity to use the platform to be with you today. Free People Radio is truth-seeking media. What could be more important in a world where we're living in narratives, and we're living in narratives that are not necessarily true, they're not necessarily false, there's a little bit of truth in all of them, and we have to stitch together a tapestry to try to come up with a story that as close as possible brings us into contact with truth. There's some things we can do that bring us into direct contact with truth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Uh, I've been watching social media and I've been listening to what people are insane and I've been reading my live chat and my comment sections and uh, boy, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. And uh, when I say anti-Semitism, I mean Jew hatred. Uh, I've never seen it like this at any time in my life. Uh, I certainly understand uh, where it comes from and why it's being expressed. And it does give me some context for the incredible draconian measures that the Anti-Defamation League takes to suppress people that it views as potentially being anti-Semitic or being anti-Semitic. 
Of course, I don't support those kind of draconian measures, but it gives some context because there's things popping up all over that I've not seen in my lifetime. And I think what the ADL's perspective was, we got to keep the hatches batting down here because if we let up our guard, you know, genocide's going to pop up. And uh, there certainly seems to be a lot of that um, unvarnished honesty about hatred for the Jews. I want to talk about that a little bit today, um, along with many other things we want to talk about. And I want to go back to something that I've tried to lay a predicate for, and that's about the Jewish identity. Uh, Jewish people believe in God. It's very simple. It's very straight ahead. They have a covenant with God. In other words, they've entered. I, Professor Penn, feel a responsibility to fulfill my role as a child of God. I have a covenant with God. I have a responsibility. I feel it. I know it. It was taught to me. doesn't mean I'm special. It doesn't mean that I'm chosen. It means I'm choosing to fulfill the terms of an agreement. It's a responsibility. It's pressure. It doesn't leave one feeling good. It's work. And uh, I had an experience in my life when I was 29 years old after uh, the previous 28 years of being raised in a religious background where Jesus Christ was spoken of in a very um, seldom fashion. Jesus Christ is not part of the life of religious Jews. For the people that think that religious Jews are sitting around bashing on Christ, for the most part, they're not. Now, in the religious hierarchy of the religious, there are certain attempts to lay the groundwork such that Jesus Christ is not Messiah. But the average life of the average faithful person does not include any kind of antagonism towards or resistance towards Jesus Christ. It's a non-issue because in a almost 6,000-year tradition, you're either the Messiah or you're not for the people that are doing the worshiping. And if you take a look at the success of the Jewish experiment, you know, the American experiment, the Jewish experiment, the concept of one God that comes from Abraham. All of the Jews that were there at the time of Christ, the apostles, went out with a Jewish orientation to the world and basically spread monotheism throughout a polytheistic world. We don't even have to call it Judaism because that's a label. It was a faith in the one true God. It was called the nation of Israel. It was called the Jews. It was called the Catholics. It was called the Protestants. It was the idea that there was a one true living God. And that spread throughout the world. And the success of that gospel is the tremendous number of people that claim they believe in God and claim they believe in Christ. Now, when I say claim, you can claim you believe in Christ, but what, are, what am I willing to do? What am I willing to do to actually be part of that covenant? 
And that's what I'm working out in my life. I'm progressively giving over more and more of myself to this project. And you know why? Why? Well, number one, when I was 29 years old, uh, I was seeking God. I was not seeking Christ. I was seeking a relationship with God in a traditional Jewish way through prayer, through study, and through charity. That's how Jewish people approach God, through prayer, through study of the Bible, of the Torah, and through charity. And I was fully engaged in that, and I came into a moment in my life, and Jesus Christ appeared to me. And I, I've had so much trouble talking about this my entire life because it makes me in the Jewish religion an apostate or a heretic. But at this moment when people are talking about apocalypse, we have wars everywhere breaking out. We have all of these signs, and we have this communal dread of what's happening. I mean, this is not just me. I know this is fairly widespread. You know, you can put in the live chat if you're feeling some dread. Uh, people are becoming dialed in to how serious these events are. Now, we have lots of people that don't want to deal with it. I get it. A lot of people just want to just continue to live their lives, watch the football game on Sunday, and go to bed, and they get up and it's another day. And I'm not judging them. I'm saying there's a lot of people like that. But there is a growing cohort of people that are paying very close attention to what's going on because they recognize, they can feel their survival instinct is triggered. They know things are serious. They can feel it. So in that context, I have to say that I had this experience that deeply troubled me and uh, troubled me not so much in that I got a relationship with God, with Christ, that was great. But how do I deal with that as a Jewish person? You know, can I tell that to my father, to my mother, to my sister, to my cousins? Because when I do, and I did, they cut me off. Okay, they thought I was crazy because that's their orientation. But for me, that kind of an experience was so powerful it's shaped and formed my life, and it's brought me into this relationship with you through this podcast. And I sit here and I think about the political, and I think about the religious. And for those of you who have been working with me, and we've been doing this together for some period of time, I try to merge the two. I don't want to be a Bible thumper, but I don't want to leave behind the wisdom, the knowledge, the strength, the power that is invested in these holy texts. So we pray and we read and we study, and I try to relate them to current events. But, but for me, in, in talking about anti-Semitism today, just as a, as a foreshadow of where we're going to head, Jesus Christ was a Jewish rabbi. He was a Jewish revolutionary speaking to a Jewish audience who he looked at and said, oh, you folks, a lot of you, kind of not redeemable. So first for the Jew and now for the Gentile. And he did something that was a you know, really powerful action, right? This is God saying, this covenant is now open. The books are open. 
all who wish to believe, please come. Revolutionary idea number one. Revolutionary idea number two, Christ sent a comforter that lives in me. I have my own personal relationship with God, which was not part of the Jewish tradition. Judaism is tribalism. And you can see that tribalism today in the Middle East, where you look at the Philistines and the Israelites going hammer and tong, both sides demonizing the other, both sides proclaiming the need to destroy their antagonist. And when I mean destroy, I don't mean beat. I mean eliminate, vanquish, exterminate. These are tribal sentiments that go back thousands of years. And the appearance of Christ in the world was to bring about a healing that would prevent genocide because we would like to treat others as we want them to treat us. So if we don't want to be destroyed down to the last baby, the last ox, the last donkey, then we would afford that to other people. And that's why we want, I'm going to talk you know, about this experience that I had, which I think all of us can have. I don't want to in any way, shape, or form make my experience special. I knocked on the door and got an answer I didn't expect. But it was a great benefit to me, and it's resolved all my questions in life. It's given me a path to reconcile myself, heal myself, forgive myself, give over to risking my life to do this work with you. When I say risking my life, hey, you know, I'll send you some of my comments sometimes that I get where people threaten me because we're now dealing with this Jewish issue and it's so laden with judgments and so filled with hatred and anger and actual intent to harm and there are people being harmed on both sides of the equation. So as I, as we go through this today and we talk about it, I'm sharing this experience that I had because I want each of us to have it. So I want to thank God for appearing in my life. I thank God, Master and King of all worlds, for appearing in my life. I thank God for appearing in my life. And I'm trying to give everyone a hint because when we pray, whatsoever we wish for, when we pray, believe you've received it and ye shall have it. So if you're seeking confirmation that there is one true God, if you're looking for evidence, first of all, don't put God to the test. Just thank God for being in your life. Do it over and over again, and you're going to get a surprise. Try it. Let's try it as a community, because at this time in world history, I hope you agree with me, we need some supernatural help. Well, give me a few minutes to talk politics here. Let's uh, put up this first piece on Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump. It's very illustrative of our world today. You, you said that it depends on, you know, even the, the global tax depends on what happens in the White House. So let's just talk uh, quickly about that. So um, on the Republican side, we have, and it, the, the reason I think it matters is because our economy depends on 
on who's in charge, whether, you know, the composition of Congress, who's in the White House, or... I think the but, House really matters the most, but that's just... But there's plenty of networks <laughs> that are covering Trump and Biden and all the things that yeah. are happening, and they're covering it. Some are, aren't covering all of it, but, but we're going to cover it right now. So Trump's been indicted. Um, his poll numbers are going up, so primary voters like him. It, it, if he wins the primary, do you think he can win the general? And is it good for the Republican Party if, if Donald Trump is the nominee? Look, can, and then I want to get to Biden can, and, and can, his malarkey defense and all that can stuff. Trump, can Trump beat Biden? Yeah, he can beat Biden. You, is that a good thing for the Republican Party if Donald Trump is the... Look, the, the Republicans the, get to select their nominee. I think if you want to go sheer policy to policy, it's not good for Republicans, it's good for America. Trump's policies are better, straightforward, than Biden's It makes policy. it complicated if, if he's got all these trials and, and, and all this stuff overhanging. It the, makes it complicated, also helps him when... But do you think he Democrats could win an election? Could he win an election? And, can he and win get, that election? Yeah, he can. You think he can? You, the, the question is, is he the strongest to win the election? I don't know that answer, but can somebody, can anybody beat Biden? Yeah, anybody can beat Biden. Can Biden beat other people? Yes, Biden can beat him. It's on any given but, day. But, that's good. That's good. Thank you. Well, that's rather swarmy, isn't it? Very tricky. Words chosen very carefully. A very subtle undermining by, at, at that time, Leader McCarthy of the putative head of the Republican Party, ex-President Donald Trump. Very subtle. Very skillful. That's why he was Speaker. Well, let's listen to Tom Emmer talk about McCarthy. Let's listen to this next piece. Is recognized for two minutes. Thank you. Kevin McCarthy has earned this. Under Speaker McCarthy's leadership, our House Republican majority... Stop this for a second. I do want to say, just because I liked it, I just have to comment. I like his suit. You know, there's an old saying, if you have nothing good to say about someone, just comment on something like, he sure had a nice suit on. Isn't that a gorgeous suit and tie? I want something just like that. Please continue. Has actually defied all odds and overperformed expectations again and again and again. It all started with a speaker's race. When our speaker, Kevin McCarthy, showed the American people how he would never give up. It carried over into the Speaker spearheading a rules package to create the most transparent, member-driven legislative process that I've ever seen since I've been here. And since then, Speaker McCarthy's Republican majority has been successful in bringing common sense back to our nation's capital by passing legislation to affirm a parent's right to be involved in their child's education, bolster American energy production, fully fund veterans' care and benefits, fight back against the regulatory state and continue delivering on our promise to rein in Democrats' reckless spending by passing fiscally responsible appropriations bills. We've also achieved historic conservative wins like passing the strongest border security legislation in history, passing the first Republican-only NDAA in history, and passing the first Republican-only state and foreign operations appropriations bill. So many Americans are better off because of Kevin McCarthy's leadership. American families, job creators, entrepreneurs, service members, law enforcement officers, and the list goes on and on. These are just a few of our House Republican majority successes. But make no mistake, 
We need Kevin McCarthy to remain speaker if we're going to stay focused on our mission of delivering common sense wins for the American people. We've shown Americans what success looks like when we come together as a team. Now it's time for us to stand together stronger than ever so we can get back to the work our majority was elected to do. I'm proud to support the speaker as we continue championing conservative priorities that will put our country on a better path. Thank you, Speaker McCarthy. Gentleman from Florida. I yield back. That's very nice. So you have uh, Kevin McCarthy subtly undermining President Trump's candidacy. We have Representative Emmer, one of the greatest pitchmen in the history of the Congress. Uh, fantastic car salesman. Great. Fantastic. This car has never been used because they turned the odometer back. Hey, perfect. He's supporting McCarthy. Both of these two people subsequently were deposed. McCarthy first, and then Emmer. Emmer got in the pole position to take over, and it took one tweet, as most of you know, from President Trump, saying what, Pre uh, what Professor Penn's been saying for months. Tom Emmer is not really the guy. That's a nice way of saying it. He wears beautiful suits. I like his tie. He's got gorgeous hair. He's a great salesman. I don't have to sit here and tell you all these horrible things about him because all you have to do is look at his record. And he went down because of one tweet from President Trump, which scared the living shit. Excuse me, you can beep that one out. Scared the living shit. You can do it twice out of the mainstream Republicans because Emmer's support evaporated like spit on a griddle. And then, voila, they came up with this new guy nobody had ever heard of, Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson, representative from the great state of Louisiana, the former center of the slave trade back in the days of the Confederacy. For those of us who have ever been to New Orleans, wow, that's a different spot, isn't it? Kind of has its own character, its own kind of feel. You know, I'm trying to be, I don't know, generous today. I'm, things are so terrible, I'm actually in a good mood because I have no choice. I'm trying to work through it so I can make through. I walked in, I told my producer I'm filled with a feeling of dread. No, I'm filled with a feeling of levity. I don't know why. Maybe because I talked about Christ appearing to me. And not because I want to make my spe myself special. I thank Christ for appearing on this earth and making his majesty known to the people. I thank God for that. That's cool. That's great. It's a chance to avoid evil completely taking over this planet. We don't want that. Those of us who are watching this, we see it in the term, well, those of us, I see it in the terms of good versus evil. I just do. I have a biblical worldview. I just do. I'm very honest about it. No, I'm scientifically educated. I know all of the philosophers up through all the postmodernists, and it's all one conversation about, is there a God? And if you believe there's a God, what do you believe about him? And so we've been talking about this as, as human beings for thousands of years. It's really a great conversation. And now we're all in it. All of us are in this conversation, if we want to be. So Emmer supports McCarthy. 
McCarthy supports, you know, kind of undermining Trump. And we get Mike Johnson, representative from Louisiana. And he's supposed to be mega Mike. He's supposed to be different. So let's listen to a little bit of his coming out of the gates work here. Let's uh, listen to Mike Johnson on his first resolution. The new Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives has put forward a resolution supporting Israel in its war on Gaza. The election of Mike Johnson on Wednesday followed bids by three other candidates that failed to win enough support from hardline Republicans. Louisiana Congressman is an ally of former President Donald Trump. The chamber has been unable to pass any laws since Kevin McCarthy was ousted more than three weeks ago. Our correspondent Heidi Jo Castro sent this update from Washington, D.C. The U.S. Congress had been champing at the bit to take action to support Israel since the war's start. And on Wednesday, it finally got its chance after the House finally elected a speaker after 22 days without one. Republican Mike Johnson, a Trump ally, won unanimous support from his party to become the new leader of the House. And even before taking the oath of office, he vowed to pass a resolution to support Israel as his first act as speaker. The first bill that I'm going to bring to this floor in just a little while will be in support of our dear friend Israel, and we're overdue in getting that done. We're going to show not only Israel, but the entire world that the barbarism of Hamas that we have all seen play out on our television screens is wretched and wrong, and we are going to stand for the good in that conflict. The resolution passed That's with good. overwhelming... That sounded rather standard, didn't it? Mega Mike seems fit right in. Because remember, we got a uni party. This is not a comment by me that Israel should or should not be supported. Let's leave that for another time. What I'm seeing and sharing, and I hope you agree with me, this is a continuation of a conversation that was interrupted when McCarthy was let go. And the war started, and you know, here we go. Let's listen to him on Sean Hannity's piece, a Sean Hannity show, because he went right to Hannity, right to Fox News, right to Hannity, kissed the ring. Let's see what he's got to say. Now, we can't allow Vladimir Putin to prevail in Ukraine because I don't believe it would stop there, and it would probably encourage and empower China stop. to perhaps make a move on. Thank you. Where have we heard this before? We have to oppose Putin. We have to, you know, defend the Ukraine because we don't want to encourage China. Have we ever heard this before? I mean, this sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? Does this sound familiar? I don't even know if my young producers listen to such things. But I'm going to tell you, this is right out of the playbook. Let's continue. Taiwan, we have these concerns. Um, we're, we're not going to abandon them. We, we want to be cooperative. We need to work together on this. But we, we owe it to the people to know what the plan is, where the money is going to be spent, and we need some auditing for the dollars that we've already Can sent over there. It? These are not. Can we start this over? Here's what he's saying We're going to spend the money, but we're going to do it with less fraud and corruption. Isn't that nice? As if the whole project is not going to be considered. Let's remember, probably the margin on weapons, 30%. That's before costs like salaries and bonuses and stock options. Just the straight-up profit, 30 maybe 40%. So if they go spend $100 billion, they, that'd be we the people, because we approve these representatives. When we spend that money, $100 billion, somebody makes $30, $40 billion goes in their pocket. 
It funds our country. It's what we're good at, making weapons and killing people. Let's watch it again. Now, we can't allow Vladimir Putin to prevail in Ukraine because I don't believe it would stop there. And it would probably encourage and empower China to perhaps make a move on Taiwan. We have these concerns. Um, we're, we're not going to abandon them. We, we want to be cooperative. We need to work together on this. But we, we owe it to the people to know what the plan is, where the money is going to be spent. And we need some auditing for the dollars that we've already sent over there. These are not tough questions, right? One thing that House Republicans are resolved on is that we must stand with our most important ally in the Middle East, and that's Israel. Um, we will. I, we, we certainly hope that it doesn't come to boots on the ground. Uh, if, if it comes to that, and we communicated this to the White House staff as well today, that um, you know we have the Article I power in the legislative branch of government, and they have Article II. They have very limited authority on what they can do to respond without coming to Congress to seek consent. And even my Democrat colleagues, Sean, that are uh, at committees of jurisdiction understand this in the, the Foreign Affairs Committee. And you've had comments made by the leaders of Iran that they themselves may get involved in a conflict. If that happens, correct me if you think I'm wrong, I would, bet, I would say all bets are off in the Middle East. We could have a full-out war in the Middle East, Israel at the center of it. And at that point, if Israel's existence is put in jeopardy, I don't think Prime Minister Netanyahu, who I've known for almost 30 years, I don't think there's anything he won't do to preserve and protect his country from people that have committed their lives to destroy it. He has to do that. And around here, people throw around the phrase existential threat. They have an existential threat every day. I mean, their neighbors want to eliminate them and wipe them off the map. So Prime Minister Netanyahu is resolved. I've, I've spent time with him personally. I know him as well. Uh, I, I think he's a strong leader at, at this important time, and I, I think he's going to do what is necessary. And, and the, America will back him up. I mean, they tell us when we're in Israel, and you've been there, and they, they say the reason that we are able to sustain ourselves and survive is because everyone knows that our big ally is America. We know that Iran is directly tied to all this. These are Hamas and Hezbollah are, are proxies of Iran, and they're tied in now with Russia and China. I mean, it is a new axis of evil. That's how we see it, and so it has to be addressed you say accordingly. If Israel, with all the funding of terror and all these terror organizations, are they within their right to fight back and go directly at Iran? Of course. That was, the first, as you noted, the first act of my speakership, mm -hmm. is that we pass that resolution to, to articulate that and make it very clear where we stand. Yeah. The, the House is back in business, and we're going to stand with Israel. Well, that was some very novel thinking, wasn't it? This guy just, he's just such a creative force in politics. Every word that came out of his mouth was new. He was mega Mike. He had a completely new foreign policy, a completely new perspective. Ho, ho, what a surprise. The uni party wins again. The uni party wins again. I, and I want to say and reemphasize, I'm not saying Israel should not be supported. I am saying the words that came out of his mouth could have come out of any of these hacks' mouth. They all say the same thing. Maybe they got a gun to all these people's heads. I don't know. I don't know why they all say the same thing. They all say the same thing. They all say the same thing. Does that concern you? Kind of concerns me. So what, what we're seeing here now is that there's broad, uniparty agreement that Iran's the problem and China's the problem and Russia's the problem and we may have a war and Hannity, you know, dropped the secret sauce in here. 
threatened the old nuclear card, pulled it out, waved it around, you know, because we're good at that here in the United States. We've dropped nukes before, and we'd like to let you know we'll drop them again or our proxies will drop them because there'll be no nuclear bomb dropping unless our government says drop them. So, you know, here we go. We're, you know, this is why I'm filled with dread today, and I'm talking about my own personal salvation and my own personal revelation because I want that for everyone. Maybe that will get us around the corner. Maybe that'll get us around the corner. But there's nothing new in this. And if there's something new coming, I'm sure looking for it because we need new. And as a transition, if you need new tires and you want to support Free People Radio, tireget.com. That's tireget, T I R E G E T.com. Everything you need for tires. You got cars on your in your garage, on your driveway. You need tires about once every three or four years. You go to tireget.com. It's an e-commerce retailer. We got all the major brand tires at the right price. We got no-name tires at the right price. You buy them at the right price. For no extra charge, we're going to ship them to the dealer right by your house. You pay Tireget $25 a wheel for a mount, a balance, a valve stem, and a disposal. You make an appointment. You show up at the dealership right by your house. The tires are there. It's cashless. You drive in. They put them on. You drive out. And guess what? You have to buy your tires from someone. When you buy them from TireGet.com, you're supporting the movement, and thank you very much for doing so. That's a live read. we got to do this kind of stuff, and I'll tell you why. We want to stay uh, out of the bankruptcy filings. This is a very expensive undertaking, truth-seeking media, and I want to thank all of you who are supporting us, and your, your support is deeply appreciated. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to talk about tribalism because it's so um, obvious that there's a tribal conflict here, but we're going to do it in the most entertaining way. Can you play this next piece? It's going to surprise people. The thing that I am most proud of is, first of all, that I played for this team here in Minnesota, the Minnesota Vikings, and that we were winners. This team had colorful characters, great players, Jim Marshalls and Alan Page and Carl Ellers and good Lord of mercy. I mean, it's just tremendous talent, great players, played for a long time. The greatest ability you can have is durability. Tarkin had durability. Marshall had durability. You know, the great players have durability. They play every week. And it's how you gain all the records of recognition that you have to have. You got to have durability above any other ability that you have. To play that long, and we all played and didn't miss games because of injury, you have to like what you're doing. We like what we're doing. We love football. We love playing football. We loved our team. We put this state on the map as far as professional football is concerned. Our goal was to get to the Super Bowl, and unfortunately, there was four trips of which we came out on the short end of it. We were a much bigger, stronger, more physical football team than they were. It was just that simple, especially in certain spots. From a defense standpoint, we were going into the game thing. They were, they were going to have a lot of trouble scoring at all. Going into that game, we knew that we were a much better team in Minnesota and that if we played them 10 times, we beat them 10 times. And we just kept uh, everything in front, kept them off balance, and, uh, and just uh, quite candidly kicked the hell out of them. 
I think by the time the first half was over, I had already made 12 tackles. Whenever your defensive free safety makes 12 tackles the first half, you're in trouble. It was basic football against the Vikings. It was the steel curtain versus the purple people eaters. <laughs> and we did what we had to do to win, and we'll, we'll dance a little bit, but in the end, we're just gonna body slam people. One of our players, Glenn Edwards, he walked up to Carter and looked up and he said, buckle up, big fella, it's gonna be a long day. We pretty much figured that it was a formality. We'd go out and beat them and go back and have our party. We had them down and we knew that they had to pass, so I just made a good jump on the ball. And when I got there, I just wanted to deliver a blow just to make that statement that, you know, it's over. You know, the game's over. I remember thinking to myself, this is the fourth Super Bowl game that I've played in that, that we've lost, and I'll never have the opportunity to play in another one. I just had that feeling. Whatever it was, we got beat in four Super Bowls, and uh, you know I can't blame what you know anybody. We just weren't ready to play the Viking football that we usually play. We were so set on playing every week the same routine, and then all of a sudden you break that routine and go for two weeks rather than a week in between. It just seemed like it threw us off. I don't know why, and I don't know why it wouldn't do the same to them. I always thought we lost something especially with all the fanfare. They've got every conceivable form of entertainment. It's the people who can overcome these things that, um, that I think fare best in, uh, in situations like that. Uh, we, we weren't able to do that. It's almost like, let's don't think about them, because those people, are, they lost four Super Bowls and they're less, you know, let's push them aside. And we have been permanently pushed aside, unfortunately. You gotta win the Super Bowl and uh, uh, second place is, doesn't count, but second place doesn't count in anything in, in this country, and maybe maybe that's right, I don't know. You either win it all or you kind of blend in with the rest of the teams. Well, the Vikings were pushed aside because they lost four Super Bowls. And just to share with you, um, I was a teenager at this time. The Vikings lost four Super Bowls from 1970 to 1977. And as that piece um, so uh, aptly demonstrated, uh, they lost to the Chiefs and to Miami and to Pittsburgh and to Oakland, and they lost ugly. They were never in any of those games. And here I am. This is where the tribalism part comes into. You know, we're not very tribal here in the United States. But sports teams bring about tribalism, an identification with the team, an identification with the group, a dogged love of your folks. And there I was. I was a young Minnesotan. I used to watch every game. I used to sit on the edge of my seat. I mean, every play, I knew everything there was to know about the Vikings, as did everybody else in my generation at that time. Because the Purple People Eaters, they were bad. It was a just fantastic. Chuck Foreman, fantastic. And it was a different era. These people didn't make a lot of money. They were playing football. I mean, it was a good living, but it's not like making... 40 million bucks now. These people were making reasonable money. In the off-season, they sold cars. They were part of the community. We knew who they were. I knew these people. And, uh, wow, losing four Super Bowls. Oh, I was, I was crushed, just crushed, because I had this tribal identification with the Viking. The Viking symbolized Minnesota. 
it symbolized the Norse spirit of Minnesota, the outdoors, the Vikings. It was cool. And it was we were playing outside in those days. There was no indoor stadium. I was outside. I used to go to the games with my grandfather. I mean, we'd go to the games. It would be, you know, four degrees outside. My grandfather was drinking out of a flask. You know, it was fantastic. And it was crushing to lose. Crushing. It was just crushing because I had this identification with the Vikings. And they lost that first Super Bowl. Depression. And then they came up on the second. And we were going to win the second time. Lost again. More depression. And then lost again. And lost again. And pretty quick, as Fran Tarkington said, the tradition of the Vikings was cast aside because they were losers. They lost four great opportunities to establish themselves as Super Bowl winners, and they failed to do so. And it had a great impact on me. I don't watch the Vikings anymore. And part of it is I got this strange thinking because every year, like they won this weekend, so now they're 4-4. Four and four. They started terrible. Now they've won a bunch of games. They're 4-4. Four and four. They got a shot. So I'll probably tune in next Sunday, and they'll lose inevitably. I'm so narcissistic that I think that when I tune in the Vikings, they lose. So I try not to watch them because why would I want to be responsible for them losing? This is how goofy you get when you're a little kid. I mean, I was a teenager, a young teenager, and I watched all that failure, that failure, that defeat. So let's talk about disappointment. Let's just talk about tribalism and disappointment and what it does to a people, how it twists a people. Because watching the Vikings lose four Super Bowls twisted me. I'm going to tell you, it twisted me. It gave me kind of a, an unsatisfied yearning with the idea I'm never going to get my yearning fulfilled. I wanted to win the Super Bowl. I want to be a champion. I never had that experience. It's like the Palestinian people wanted a state. And they had failure after failure. Disappointment. Let's play this first one. Start at 946, please. There you go. Having Perfect. made conflicting promises, Britain now had to face up to their consequences. She had created a contradiction. Just how unworkable this situation was, it took her 30 years to accept. Both communities, Jews and Arabs, believed they had been promised the land. As the Zionists swiftly began to implement their objectives, the Arabs were the first to conclude they had been deceived. Riots broke out in 1920. In 1921, there was even greater violence as Arabs attacked Jews, and the British tried to regain order. After a period of relative calm, mutual suspicion between the Arab and Jewish communities flared up again in 1929, and rapidly escalated into mob violence with horrific consequences. 133 Jews and 116 Arabs were killed. Britain's response was slow and inadequate. Calm was finally restored by a show of British force. 
Meanwhile, the Jewish community was forging ahead under the umbrella of the British mandate, securing major economic concessions and establishing its own elected assembly and institutions of government. The Arab majority, on the other hand, felt left behind economically and politically. To be granted democratic representation, they were effectively required to accept the Balfour Declaration. But the Arabs rejected this, fearing that a Jewish national home would lead to the creation of a Jewish state in their land. For their part, the British feared that an elected Arab majority would oppose Jewish demands for land and immigration. And so they held back the democratic progress they were supposed to foster under the mandate. Britain was upholding the first part of the declaration to establish a home for the Jewish people. But the second undertaking in the declaration, to protect the rights of the Arab population, proved to be hollow. Arab alarm grew still further in the 1930s when increasing numbers of Jews sought sanctuary in Palestine as the specter of anti-Semitism grew in Nazi Germany. As more and more land passed into Jewish hands, the sense of Arab dispossession grew. By May 1936, Palestine was in open rebellion and it was not just Jewish communities who were being attacked, it was the British too. Increasingly losing control, the British authorities resorted to ruthless methods to put down the revolt, including hangings, house demolitions, and the use of civilians as human shields. For a period, British and Jewish men fought the Arabs jointly in a counter-insurgency force known as the Special Night Squads. By 1939, the rebellion was suppressed, leaving the Palestinian leadership weakened for years to come. To try to address the underlying deadlock between Arabs and Jews, London had responded with a succession of inquiries and commissions through the 1930s. Their dilemma was that any attempt to placate one community would provoke the anger of the other. At a loss for a solution, the Peel Commission of 1937 proposed to partition Jews and Arabs into two states. But Arab opinion, led by the vehemently anti-Zionist Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Amin al-Husseini, denounced any idea of conceding territory to Jews as unthinkable. That's good. That's good. We'll just go to the next one. Uh, what the British ended up doing, interestingly, is uh, World War II was getting ready to start, and the Germans were cultivating their peoples as an ally against the British, and the British threatened, as they were by the Germans, started to make concessions to the Arabs and go back on their promises to the Jews. And they actually proposed a one-state solution. Yes, because of the resistance of the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Husseini, uh, they actually proposed, just before World War II broke out, 
a one-state solution that was based on democracy. And since the Arabs outnumbered the Jews two to one, it would have been an Arab state, the Arab state of Palestine. But because Jews would still be given minority status and the protection of their rights in that polity, Husseini rejected the idea. So that's like losing the Super Bowl, right? They could have got a state. They could have had their own state under the British mandate. They rejected it. It's like losing the first Super Bowl to the Kansas City Chiefs. But there was more games to play. Let's play this next one, the U.N. plan for partition. The United Nations Partition Plan for Palestine was a proposal by the United Nations which recommended a partition of mandatory Palestine at the end of the British mandate. On 29 November 1947, the UN General Assembly adopted the plan as Resolution 181. The resolution recommended the creation of independent Arab and Jewish states and a special international regime for the city of Jerusalem. The Partition Plan, a four-part document attached to the resolution, provided for the termination of the mandate, the progressive withdrawal of British armed forces, and the delineation of boundaries between the two states and Jerusalem. Part I of the plan stipulated that the mandate would be terminated as soon as possible and the United Kingdom would withdraw no later than 1 August 1948. The new states would come into existence two months after the withdrawal, but no later than 1 October 1948. The plan sought to address the conflicting objectives and claims of two competing movements, Palestinian nationalism and Jewish nationalism, or Zionism. Well, guess what happened on this one? This was the second Super Bowl. In the second Super Bowl, the Grand Mufti again rejected this two-state solution, which today, or at least before today, before this latest horrifying round of bloodletting, the goal for the progressive movement was this two-state solution, which was proposed on the table before all this problem started. So the Palestinians in their second Super Bowl rejected a two-state solution. They rejected it. Now, I'm not here trying to be anti-Palestinian or pro-Israel. We're just looking at the history. This is not a pro or anti thing. The history speaks for itself. You can go verify for yourself this history. Now let's talk about this Grand Mufti a little bit. He kept some interesting company. This would probably be upsetting to Jewish people. Could we play this next one, Hitler and the Mufti? The Blue Dawn Conference of September 1937 in Syria publicly asserted that the Holy Land question was the concern of all Islam. It was more than a coincidence that the only representative of the world press was that of DNB, the official news agency of Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany and fascist Italy provided material and ideas to the Arabs. It was the time of Hitler's rise to power, and his minister of propaganda, Goebbels, sent messengers to Iraq to launch an anti-Jewish campaign. Hitler's Mein Kampf was translated into Arabic and distributed all over the Arab world. The Nazis' final solution to the Jewish problem well suited Amin al-Husseini, Mufti of Jerusalem and president of the Supreme Muslim Council. At a rally in Berlin, he declared, the Germans know how to get rid of the Jews. We should learn from them.
Eight months after Munich, a frightened Britain under Neville Chamberlain restricted Jewish immigration to Israel in exchange for Arab support and Arab oil. Jews from Arab countries could no longer escape to Israel. The borders were sealed. In Iraq, the Arabs had no more need for subtleties. A pro-Nazi government was formed. Nazi swastikas were seen all over the streets, hinting that the time had come to eliminate the Jews. In June 1941, the Jewish quarter of Baghdad was the scene of a massacre. Hundreds of Jews were killed, thousands injured. Oh, there's another little lost opportunity. Um, I'm not trying to be pro or anti. I'm just saying there's history. This is the leader of the Palestinians, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, palling around with Adolf Hitler and the boys. Probably was disturbing to the Jews at the time because he was advocating genocide against the Jews. That's a you know pretty strong position to take. In other words, this tribalism, what you're seeing on play out on television, this is not new. It's been going on for a while. And let's look at this last one, the failed peace talks. The Times of Israel is reporting that Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas admits that he rejected the 2008 peace offer from the Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. Interviewed separately by Israel Channel 10 TV News, both men described the negotiations as serious and said a peace deal was achievable. The talks occurred at a turbulent time. Olmert, then Prime Minister, was involved in a corruption scandal and had announced his intentions to step down. He was later convicted of some of these crimes and sent to seven years in jail. His appeal is still pending. Olmert says that he told Abbas, Remember my words. It will be 50 years before there will be another Israeli Prime Minister that will offer you what I am offering you now. Don't miss this opportunity. Olmert said he had offered a near total withdrawal from the West Bank, proposing that Israel will retain 6.3% of the territory in order to keep control of major Jewish settlements. He said he offered to compensate the Palestinians with Israeli land equivalent to 5.8% of the West Bank, along with a link to the Gaza Strip, another territory meant to be part of Palestine. Abbas said he also felt Olmert's offer to accept a symbolic number of Palestinian refugees into Israel did not resolve the issue. Abbas continued that descendants of Palestinian refugees, now numbers in the millions, are scattered across the region. Nonetheless, the Palestinian leader described the talks as the most serious negotiations since an interim peace accord was reached in 1993 under then Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. But is this the only time when the Palestinians missed an opportunity for peace? If we look back at peace negotiations between Israel and the PLO, the answer is no. In the summer of 2000, then US President Bill Clinton hosted intense peace talks at Camp David between Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and Israeli leader Ehud Barak, culminating in a comprehensive peace plan known as the Clinton Parameters, which was similar to the later Olmert plan, though not quite as extensive. Despite the vast concessions that the plan required of Israel, Prime Minister Barak accepted President Clinton's proposal, while Arafat refused, returned home, and launched a new terror campaign against Israeli civilians known as the Second Intifada, in which thousands of Israelis and Palestinians were killed. According to Chief U.S. Negotiator Dennis Ross, Palestinian negotiators working for Arafat 
wanted him to accept the Clinton parameters, but he refused. When Ross was asked why, he said, Fundamentally, I do not believe that Arafat can end the conflict. We had one critical clause in this agreement, and that clause was that this is the end of the conflict. Current Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also held peace talks with the Palestinians in 2014. Tsipi Livni, who was then the foreign minister, came close to an agreement along with Palestinian chief negotiator Saeed Arikat. So what ended the talks? According to an extensive article in the July 2014 issue of the New Republic, it was the Palestinian president's decision to go into a unity government with Hamas, who at the time was launching missiles against Israel and calling for Israel's destruction. At the same time, however, Israel was expanding settlements, and considering the fact that Netanyahu's coalition was supported by right-wing settler political parties, it is unlikely that under those circumstances, an agreement would have been ratified. In 1973, Abba Evan, Israel's ambassador to the UN, said, The Arabs never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. One wonders, what would the Middle East look like had Abbas agreed to Almert's offer? Would ISIS exist? Would Syria fall? Would the ongoing cycle of violence and senseless death in the Holy Land continue? Leaders must strive for greatness. It seems that Israeli and Palestinian leaders only strive for their political survival. For the Rebel.media, Amigal Hecht. So we've got a people with an identity, a tribal identity, the Palestinians, who had a Nakba. They were forced off their land or left their land. You know, let's not litigate that right now. The fact is they've lost their homeland, went into the squalor of refugee camps. Um, their political leadership went through successive attempts to resolve the problem, every time resulting in failure. So the leadership could not resolve the issue. The life of the people remained horrifying. You know, I got a bad attitude from four Super Bowl losses. I mean, I really have a bad attitude about the Vikings, just a bad feeling, like, ooh, it's kind of hopeless. Projecting that into the life of a people who have been living and dying because of this problem and their leadership over a very long period of time failed many times and refused many offers to resolve the conflict and what they're fighting for today is what they were offered in 1947. This is going to lead to a very bad attitude, hopelessness, nihilism. I am not justifying the actions of Hamas. I'm talking about the hopelessness of the people. And that hopelessness is projected out into the world and affects every living person. I know that's a rather esoteric comment. But actually, we're all sitting here today on the verge of a nuclear war over the frustrations and nihilism and depression of millions of Palestinian people. You need to understand that the Palestinians themselves have participated in creating this moment because we're going to try to find whatever we can to bring about the conditions for a better world. And that better world is probably not going to be found in genocide. 
But genocide is what we're talking about today. Genocide is where we're at, and prophecy is what the leaders are giving us. Prophecy. Let's play this piece. Start at 440 and go to, to the end. Benjamin Netanyahu on the forces of light and the forces of darkness. In 14, Hamas is ISIS, and ISIS is Hamas. I'm telling them that our war against Hamas is also their war against Hamas. It is our war against Hamas, which is a test to the entire humanity. It is a struggle between the axis of evil of Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran, and that of progress and freedom. We are the sons of light. They are the sons of darkness, and light will defeat darkness. Citizens of the State of Israel, the 7th of October was a dark day in our history. We're going to do our soul-searching and find out what took place along the Gaza border. This omission will be fully examined and inquired. Everyone will need to give answers, but all that will not take place before the war is over. I, as the Prime Minister, am responsible to secure the future of this country, and my role is to lead this country and its people to an all-out uh, victory over our enemies. We should unite our forces for one goal only, and that is to move forward toward our victory with joined forces, with great belief in the eternity of the people of Israel. We will realize the prophecy of Isaiah. You will no longer hear the sound of destruction in your country, and we shall give glory to your people. Together we will fight, and together we will win. Well, this is a little bit terrifying for me. This is a modern prime minister who, I don't know if he believes in God or not, but he comes out of a tradition, a Zionist tradition, which we talked about at great length, is a Marxist tradition, and Marxism is an anti-God philosophy. So there are definitely people in Israel that do not believe in God. They're Israelis. They would call themselves Jews. They're cultural Jews. Maybe they're genetic Jews, but they're not Jews in the sense of Jesus Christ. They have not devoted their life to subservience to the one true God. Yet, this secular government, and it is secular at this time, the owner of uh, nuclear weapons, which Sean Hannity reminded us they're all too willing to use, this leader of this, this powerful military and this, uh, at this time of war is referencing Isaiah, which is a a fundamental uh, bedrock of revelation, and uh, I want to read it because I'm going to bet that few of us have actually read this passage. And as we read it, I want to just say, I always in my life just try to figure out what the next step is. I try not to look into the future because it doesn't exist. I try not to look too much at the past because as we're going to talk about them in a moment, History is an elusive thing to work on. The present is what I know, and I want to do a good job with my next step. So my next step is, this is a little bit long. Stay with me and try to 
listen to these words within the context of a tribal war where people have nuclear weapons. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit amongst the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigils, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, Keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord, because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defiled and defied me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, the people say, don't destroy it. There is still a blessing in it. So will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob's and from I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Ahor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune, and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight, and you chose what displeases me. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of your heart and wail in the brokenness of your spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God, for the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. 
I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere child, and one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build their houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will live long and enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's Isaiah 25. Take a look at it. It's the bedrock of Revelation. Prime Minister Netanyahu was referring to this scripture as he addressed the Israeli people who are split about 50-50 between a secular modern Marxist technological group of people that some would characterize as anti-Jews and a group of people that are utterly and totally subservient to the Lord. A, Democrats and Republicans. Isn't that interesting? Liberals and conservatives, they're in an energy system with each other. So I'm going to just say, I have no idea what God's plan is because his plans are way beyond my ability to think. And for the human arrogance that believes that we can understand what God's plan is or understand God's universe, isn't that what this whole fight's about? Human arrogance versus subservience subservience to a spiritual world where there's a, a king, a lord. That's what this is all about. Human arrogance, human intellect, human science, and traditional values of faith and family and freedom. That's what, that's what we're dealing with here. So in Israel, there's a 50-50 split on this issue, or maybe it's 50.2 to 49.8. It's close, very close. So Netanyahu is using this scripture to send the Jewish armies, the Israeli armies, off into war with the Hamas, with the Palestinian people. It's a very ballsy move. I'll give him that. Now, I say it's an energy system. Let's look at what someone has to say who is not a beloved person on the Professor Penn podcast. That's, no, that's Harari, Yuval Noah Harari the prophet of the fourth industrial revolution. Let's listen to what Harari has to say. You in other interviews talk about the trap that Hamas has laid for Israel. Israel's response obviously has been forceful, uh, but there are now thousands dead on, in Gaza on that side. What do you mean when you talk about the trap? Because Hamas's intention is to destroy all chances for future peace, 
it really counted on a very forceful Israeli uh, response. Again, I, I think it should be clear that Israel has not just a right, it has a duty to defend its citizens. So Israel needs to disarm Hamas, but at the same time, um, should be clear that the war is not against the Palestinian people. Uh, if uh, To fall into Hamas's trap is to wage a war against all Palestinians in a way that will make any future reconciliation impossible. I've heard you in other interviews talk about the trap. Thank you. So here's Harari talking about disarming Hamas. You know, he's really good with his words. You can see he has, he's part of really broad uniparty support in Israel for dealing with an issue. Israel has the right to defend its citizen. In fact, it has a moral imperative to do so. They need to disarm Hamas. But he's leaving open that window of reconciliation in the future. So that's his role in this. He doesn't sound very anti-military, does he? The leader of the fourth industrial revolution here. So, hey, war makes strange bedfellows, doesn't it? Harari and Netanyahu, they're playing on the same team suddenly. What a surprise. So in the background of all this, let's hear what the Iranians have to say. Because they're players in this game, aren't they? Listen to this tidbit to impress, to impress you and to uplift you tonight. The history of Iranian civilization shows that we have always supported peace and security. But Can you stop it today for a second? Does he look red to you like he's like the devil? Is that, I mean, how did they get it to do that? Is that just on our screen, or is that the way the viewers are going to see it? How did they do that? So you have to wonder what the hell is going on. Please continue. New York and the United Nations I say frankly to the American statesmen who are now managing the genocide in Palestine that we do not welcome to expansion of the war in the region. But I warn if the genocide in Gaza continues, they will not be spared from this fire. Well, we're not going to be spared. And we'll talk about that more on Thursday because, you know, this thing is heating up. We're just getting rocking here. We're just starting. It's winding up, not winding down. So let's talk about anti-Semitism and the Jews. And I want to start out by talking about time. Time. Let me say this again. Let's start out by talking about time. Can you play this piece on the short age of the universe? have only had technology for hundreds of years, yet they have managed to calculate the age of the universe. In the 17th century, British physicist Harvey proposed to use ocean salinity to calculate the age of the Earth. Then, in 1953, Claire Peterson used isotope geochronology to determine the Earth's age of 4.55 billion years. The 20th century brought astronomer Hubble's observations, which led to the cosmic expansion theory and the calculation of the universe's age at 14.4 billion years. Finally, the Planck satellite returned data of the universe's age at 13.7 billion years. As science progresses, more secrets of the universe will be uncovered. Okay. 
We're going to talk about time. Time. Every time I say it, I choke up because the biggest illusions are about time and space. Those are the traps of humanity, the prison of time and space, how we think about time and space, constructed realities. You know, before I get to it, I just have to go back and marvel that the Iranian foreign minister addressed the United Nations looks like the devil. How'd they do that? How'd they get the guy to look red with the beard like that? I mean, he was looking great. Come on. What are we doing here? What kind of propaganda are we dealing with? What kind of story are we being fed? And when we get into this issue of time and anti-Semitism, well, first let's talk about time. 13.7 billion years. Uh, boy, that's beyond my concept. Uh, the Jewish people have been around less than 6,000 years, and that's about the same with the Chinese. So when you put 6,000 years on a scale with 13.7 billion, it's a rounding error. We can't even come up with the concept of 13.7 billion years. in our Impossible for me. Maybe you can do it. And if you can do it, I'd like to have you as a guest. And let's say for the people in the live chat or some of the people that might watch, they're going to say, that's all BS. The world's 7,000 years old, as, as it says in the Bible. And you know what? Being completely frank with you, how would I know? I didn't do the research on the 13.7 billion. And I didn't do the research on the 7,000. I'm just taking somebody else's word for it. I'm being very frank. I haven't done my own research. But I know if it was 7,000 years, and I live, if I'm lucky, 100 years, how the heck am I going to get 7,000 years through my mind? That's a long time. 7,000 years. Let's leave out the 13.7 billion. Let's just talk about 7,000 years. 7,000 years? 7,000 years. Come on. We got these group of people called the Jews that when I take a look online, and I listen to Nick Fuentes and Stu Peters and a whole group of people that are just hating the Jews and they're demanding retribution against the Jews, or at least they want the people to recognize that the Jews are the problem. And I'm not saying Jewish people don't cause problems because I'm one of them and I've caused plenty of problems. But let's talk about our, our, our idea about time, just our idea about time, because this anti-Semitism is a critical cornerstone of everything that's going on in the world. It is the linchpin of the globalist. Israel is the linchpin of globalism. It's the first act of the United Nations after World War II, establishing Israel, which goes back to the League of Nations and the British being in charge, where they stuck Israel right up the Arab ass to create 100 years of conflict in the Middle East. They knew what they were doing. Go look at the lines and the sands they drew of these countries like Iraq and Iran and Syria. These borders don't follow natural rivers and mountain ranges. They're artificially drawn to turn people against each other. Shias against Sunnis primarily. Then they stuck the Jews in there. They scrambled this egg, and we're still dealing with it almost 100 years later. It's almost as if there's been a fatwa that it's time to clip the, the Palestinians out 
and bring an end to this, which is not going to bring an end to it. We're not going to have a situation where all the Palestinian people are going to be destroyed. Even though Netanyahu is talking about the Jews being the people of the light and the Palestinians being the people of the darkness, which is as racist as it gets, doesn't get any more racist or potentially genocidal than saying, we're good and you're bad. Or in other words, my culture is the truth and yours is a myth. That's always a prelude to genocide. You got to have that. That's a cornerstone of the genocidal project. This I must reject. This I must clearly reject. Having been friends, close friends with many Palestinians and knowing the depth of their culture and their art and the beauty that's inherent in the Arab tradition. Yes, they've got their issues. But listen to Netanyahu pulling up Isaiah and going full-blown eschatological on us. Come on. I mean, you don't have to just say, Islam's crazy. Hey, we got a lot of crazy going along everywhere here. And then we go back to the Jews. The Jews, it's all caused by the Jews. Blame it on the Jews. I'm listening to Nick Fuentes. I'm listening to these Darwinists say that there's this genetic group of people that are the sons of Satan. I got it from a friend of mine today that the Jews hijacked the Israelite identity. You know, uh, I have to say, I really enjoy people commenting from the outside and letting me know how dumb they are. And I'm saying it in a mean way because being dumb is going to get me killed. Because I'm out here talking about this and I'm getting threatened. People want to kill me because I self-identify as a Jew. But how do you deal with killing me when I tell you Jesus Christ revealed himself to me and I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord? Can you kill me then because I have genetics of, of, of Jewish genetics, I have to be killed? Well, why don't you kill Peter and Paul? Hey, why don't you kill Christ? Oh, hey, guess what? He was killed. I think it's time we have to start to understand John 4.22, that salvation and revelation has emerged through the Jewish people. And for all the shortcomings of the Jews and all the reasons that they could be hated, including the claim that there's deicide, that the Jews killed Christ, and then all of the other issues that people have piled on top of it, the anti First, we have to make a discrimination between people that were formerly known as Jews and are now scientists, Darwinists. They've joined the other side. Why did they do it? Probably to survive. Kind of a mass Stockholm syndrome. And then we got these Jews that believe in God, but they do not believe in Christ. And I'm watching this constant feedback in my live chat and in my comment section where people are saying these rabbis are against the teachings of Christ they're anti-Christian. And let me just say this. Please let me say this. It's about our concept of time. Our concept of time is linear. It's progressive. Do you get it? It's a constructed reality made by science. That it goes in a straight line from faith in God to faith in science. 
It's linear, and that is a lie. Time is not linear. We believe it's linear. We got watches and all kinds of devices to reinforce the linearity of time, but that's not how it works. Let's say the universe is 13.7 billion years old and we have 7,000 years of consciousness or 100,000 years of human consciousness, whatever the number is, it's insignificant compared to 13.7 billion years. Or let's say we have 7,000 years of human existence, as it says in the Bible. And we've been conscious for just the time we've been alive. For me, a few decades. For you, a few decades. What do we know about 7,000 years? Were you there? Were you there with Noah when the flood happened? Were you there with Abraham when he bound Isaac on the mountain? Were you there? I was. And I'll tell you why I was. Because to be in a traditional culture is to be timeless. To be in a traditional culture is to identify with that history the same way I identified with the Vikings. Those four Super Bowl losses never go away from me, nor does my liberation from bondage in the land of Egypt. I have an identification with that history. I was raised in a very traditional religious Jewish home. The first language of that home was Yiddish. The second language of that home was Hebrew. The third language of that home was Russian. And then we got around to English. I had a grandmother who encouraged me to assimilate. She said, my son, you're in the New Jerusalem now. You're in the New Land. She didn't call it the New Jerusalem. She said, you're in the New Land. We could have gone to Israel. We came to America. She didn't say specifically that we could have gone to Israel, but she said, we're in America. Be an American. Be an American. And I did a great job of it. I'm an American. I love this country. And I grew up studying and praying and going to synagogue and trying to be a religious Jew. And one day, without any desire, no prompting, no study, Jesus Christ appeared to me. He appeared to me, and he appeared to me one other time in my life. And I'm not saying this to aggrandize myself. It's been a burden for me my entire life. How do I deal with this? And here I am talking about it for the very first time. I've never been so sharing about this history. And I'm sharing it for one reason. Who is listening to God on this planet today? Who is listening to the word of God today? Who are the people that are seeking God, that are knocking on the door, that are praying constantly, that are five times a day putting their foreheads on the ground, seeking communion with God, or three times a day praying to God, twice a day saying the Shema, which is the holiest prayer, one of the holiest prayers in Hebrew acknowledging the one true God. Who really has a connection to the spiritual world? Who 
Well, Islamic people do. They are in Islam. To be Islamic means to be subservient to God. Orthodox Jewish people do. They give up a life of materiality to devote themselves to the life of the spiritual, to their relationship with God. And there's other groups too. But I want to thank God for appearing in my life. I want to thank Christ for appearing to me. I did not ask for it. I did not anticipate it. It was completely a surprise, and it's completely changed my life, and therefore it's changed the entire world because my life was changed. So let me pray. Thank you, God, for appearing to the religious Jews among us. For time is an illusion because it's God's speed, not man's speed. It's God's timing, not man's timing. And if God so deems it, he will appear to the Jewish people and to the Islamic people and to people throughout the world that have faith. Let us believe, let us thank God for being present here on our planet at this moment. Would we just thank him and approach him with praise and thanksgiving for being in our lives? Let's welcome him into our lives. What better medicine could there be for genocide than to have God be part of our lives? And if we ask him whatsoever we wish for when we pray, we believe we will receive it, and we believe we have received it, and we shall have it. Whatsoever we wish for when we pray, I believe I've received it, and I will have it. So I thank God for being in the lives of the religious people such that our world can change. And if you join me in this prayer, this is the ultimate politics, the ultimate revolution. Let us not judge lest we be judged. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you used it will be measured on you. Why do you see, this is for the anti-Semites, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How can we be anti-Semitic or anti-anything? How can we hate the Palestinians or hate the Jews or hate the blacks or hate the whites or have any hatred? And then say, we believe in God. These two things do not go together. So let us resolve them for either, right here and right now. And I'm going to go out with two, I think, very critical clips. Could you play this clip, this next one, I Have a Dream? Let's remember where we were reminded about these issues. Please. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident 
that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. You know, I had another clip. I'm not going to play it, and I'm going to tell you why I'm not going to play it. It cannot, that Martin Luther King clip, I have a dream can't be topped. We're going to stop right there. Thank you for joining me on this Tuesday night. I know I waxed rather religious today, but that's because our leadership is going full-blown apocalyptic. So I have to have a countermeasure, which is to judge not lest you be judged. Let's be open to miracles. Let's thank God for his miracles. Let's remember that in our own prophetic tradition from the black community, we have a dream of brotherhood or how we are judged not by our skin color or our tribal identification, but by the content of our character that we're all striving for unification with God. Or at least we would like to all be striving, or at least we'd like to get to the point where we all have that opportunity. So we're going to leave off here, and I want to thank you for joining. I want to thank you for allowing me to become so religious today. It's not my intent every time to be this religious. Remember, we played that piece about the Vikings. That was kind of not religious, right? Tribalism. So thank you for joining me, and I'm going to look forward to seeing you soon again on Thursday night. Be well and have a good week.